Hello and welcome to the Uncapped Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Sands. My co-host this week is Frederick News Post reporter, Kate Masters. Hi there. And in the studio, we have Ben Little from Manor Hill Brewing. What's happening? Hey, thank you for coming in. How are you doing today? Of course, doing great. How about yourself? Pretty good. Did you have a fun drive out here in the pouring down rain or had it stopped in time? A little bit on and off on the way out. Nothing too bad. So I'm guessing that'll help out with uh, your hop yards with a little bit of the production. Getting close to stringing all the quarry yarn up and Mm -hmm. getting everything going. So looking forward to that. This will probably be the first year we really get some good yield out of that. So, Yeah, because it's three years that it until you really get cones that are usable is that yeah we had some good cones coming out last year and year two of uh growth year one and a half essentially but we got the majority of two years of growing seasons in and that that last year especially our cascades turned out pretty well so i'm looking forward to some good good output this year from that all right so let's let's roll back a little bit (laughs) since i i started in a very awkward (laughs) location um, you're from Manor Hill Brewing, mm-hmm. which was opened in. We started brewing on our production system, our 15 barrel production system, in July of 2015. Uh, we were doing a lot of piloting before that. I'd started there uh, in January of that year, so literally from January to July, I was brewing five, ten gallons at a time, multiple, multiple batches to get stuff out there. And the location is absolutely beautiful. Wait, can you tell me a little bit about that? Like where, where? What exactly is that? So we're on a 54-acre agricultural preservation farm in Ellicott City. Uh, we're actually just west of Ellicott City, technical address. Uh, we're a little going t- closer to Clarksville, excuse me, um, right backing up to Clark's Farm, which a lot of people know. Um, it's the Mariner family farm who owns us, owns Victoria Gastropub, owns Manor Hill Tavern. They had a dream one day. They kind of fell into the restaurant business and had a dream one day after seeing what Oscar Blues did in Colorado, having a couple of restaurants as well as a brewery. Uh, owning a farm at that point, a working farm, saying, you know, this is who we should be one day. Uh, and luckily, I got lucky enough to get picked to be the person brewing there. So the the brewery itself, was that a converted barn or is it a purpose-built building? No, it's a converted barn. I mean, almost rebuilt to a large extent, but uh, the, the frame and the skeletal structure was essentially the same. And it was um, the old cow palace, essentially. Yeah, the, the first time I came out there, I... I thought for sure I wasn't going to the right location, but it was just so beautiful driving up to it with the all the hops on the right-hand side, the beautiful house, and then the the brewery itself is gorgeous. It's literally, like I said, it's on the Mariner's property, and their house is only a few hundred yards away, so um, it's a v- beautiful house. Uh, it was built from the ground up. Uh, they actually lived in uh, Winnebago trailer, essentially outside for almost two years while the house was being built, oh, wow. so... Uh, Aesthetically, they definitely wanted everything on the farm to kind of have the same feel, um, and they did it with that. And we also have a third barn on site that houses some woodworking stuff and some of our other projects as well for brewing. And definitely quite an upgrade from a Winnebago. Oh, yeah. <laughs> place is immaculate. So let's get into your history a little bit. Did did you start out at Flying Dog, or was that a step along the way? That was a step along the way. So I started off in retail management, high-end retail management for a while, and uh did a lot of traveling uh, for that. So I became a beer nerd along the way, essentially. So collecting beer as I went and trading for beer and all that kind of good stuff. And then I kind of got tired of it. So I learned how to homebrew. Um, I had done it before, but not on any sort of serious level. Um, but once I really started, you know, collecting and getting all kinds of craziness, I got tired of trying to find it. So I learned how to make it. Um, and at that point, I was tired of retail and I needed to get out. 
So I uh, looked around for the industry. I actually, the first people I contacted were Flying Dog, and I could not get a call back to save my life. Uh, not a, any sort of word, any peep from anyone. So I started asking some of my friends in the industry, how, how does this work? How do I start? How do I get in? And uh, I got a job with Bond Distributing in uh, Baltimore, Maryland as a craft sales representative. And after about nine months, I'd gained some attention from Flying Dog, and they pulled me on to sell beer for them. And then you moved on to Bush Brewing, which is uh, part of Frisco Tap House in Columbia. They had had my homebrew along the way. I was their sales rep. Um, they were looking to grow what is their brew pub on site into a production brewery at some point, and they really wanted to get kind of serious about it. So I guess with my kind of background in distribution and sales and also being a home brewer on some level, they thought it translate well to starting out a brewery. So I got in there, learned on a seven-barrel system. Everything was very much hands-on. Um, not a whole lot of training either, so just kind of jumped right into it. Uh, but everything scales up pretty well. So it wasn't a huge deal on that system specifically. Um, and then I was only there for a few months before I got tapped. And I was selling to Victoria Gastropub as well at, uh, while I was at Flying Dog and with Bond. So I'd created some good relationships with the family and specifically Jason Gocher there, who is uh, the, what is he, president of brewery operations or something? He's got a, he's got a title too with us, but he's, <laughs> he's the head guy of the brewery. Um, so I had a good relationship with him and we were comfortable being able to start this from the ground up and really get something going. Um, I think that we both had the similar mindset in terms of what we drank, what we had as a vision for the brewery. The family was way behind it and way behind us. So it was a pretty easy decision for me. So I don't know if it's just my perception or has Manor Hill kind of just all of a sudden taken off and maybe not just recently with, it was probably last summer ish maybe where like it just skyrocketed in popularity. I mean, we luckily, again, the family's put some investment into this. So when we started, we have, like I said, we have a 15 barrel brew house. We started with 430 barrel fermenters. Um, and that was in July of 2015. Today, we're up to 830 barrel fermenters and 515 barrel fermenters. So in terms of the pure investment they've made and, and just stainless steel has been massive. So it's allowed us to grow pretty fast. Um, and we keep those full 100% of the time too. So in terms of what we're doing, and, and, and we're doing some stuff that was a little different to this market too. Um, very influenced on what's happening in, you know, guys like Tired Hands, what's happening in Vermont, uh, in Massachusetts with some of those guys. So um, as they grew in popularity, it really shed some light on us and allowed us to grow pretty fast too. Yeah, I just feel like all of a sudden Manor Hill was talked about everywhere and you became the the coveted beer that was hard to get like it, citrus yeah. splendor still see like people make a big deal when it's available. It's fun. It's fun to see. I'm, I'm a little bit, you know, sheltered from that being that I spend so much time at the brewery and don't have a lot of time to get it retail. Like I used to. Um, and I don't see a lot of it. I, I keep in contact with, you know, social media quite a bit. And in terms of a lot of the people who, who were real, really the collectors and guys like I used to be in terms of, I still am to an extent, I just don't have the time or the energy to find it as much as I used to. But um, yeah, these I, I keep in contact in my pulse with those guys, but it's uh, still really unique for me to kind of take a step back. And when people are telling me that I'm our beer is getting traded for the most coveted beer out there, this kind of stuff I can't even get. I'm like, well, I'm making this. How can I, what's going on here? <laughs> you need to get some of those same contacts back. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and in terms of the stuff going on in Vermont and Massachusetts, mm -hmm. is that like the farm brewery movement or were you inspired by the beers coming out of there? I think there's a big tie to, uh, obviously beer is agriculture. Um, without farms, there is no beer. 
So I think there's a big, always been a big movement up there to tie agriculture to beer and do things that are very natural, you know, unfiltered kind of stuff, uh, high flavor kind of stuff, and and really focusing on quality ingredients as opposed to, you know, true production in terms of uh, volume. So I think a lot of that kind of came into play, and that was a mentality that I was really into as well. And then with us being a farm brewery, something that's relatively new still in the state, um, I thought there was a great you know, possibility for us to really grow what that is and show the rest of the state um, what, how much of the agricultural influence there is and also hopefully get some more kind of eyes on growing more beer-related products in the state, you know, in terms of grains, in terms of hops, in terms of fruit for brewing. There's a lot of things that can be done that really haven't been taken advantage of yet. So are you guys set up, will you be growing enough hops that you'll be able to source a lot or is it they'll just, you'll be able to use them as add-ins and... It's more of an add-in factor right now. I think as a whole, I think there's been a lot of growth in terms of what we're doing is for growing hops in the state, but we're still a little ways off from producing any sort of volume that can actually be really impactful on what we're doing. You know, we're growing just over two acres of hops. Last check, that is in maybe just under 10% of the hops grown in Maryland. Um, and that would probably touch two to three batches of beer for us. Okay, so you, know, you can throw it in for some added uh, flavoring, or, but it can't be the main part of the hop bill. It can't be the main part of the hop bill. We do, 40% of our field are nugget hops. Um, nugget hops are a great clean bittering hop, so we're able to use those in our beer as is, especially as the volume and the yield increases on those. We'll be able to use more and more of that. But in terms of the other size of hops, we tend to like to use those for more of the fresh hop kind of stuff, and and not really go through the production aspect and just showing those hops for really what they are and not losing any sort of character. So we, we do produce, you know, wet hop harvest ales and stuff like that with those. Oh, and do hops, this is a dumb question, but do hops to have a, a like a terroir like wine does? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, typically they're grown around the 48th North Parallel or South Parallel because a lot's going on in, you know, the Southern Hemisphere at this point. There's a lot of hops being brought to the forefront. But in terms of where we're at now, uh, you know, Pacific Northwest, the Willamette Valley, the Yakima Valley, Canyon Creek Valley, um, all the way through Hallertau regions and stuff like that and the Kent region in uh, UK. So there's basically the same kind of, and I think it's also the same where if potatoes grow well for the most part, hops grow well, which is something pretty interesting that I learned recently. Huh. That's <laughs> I've, I've never heard that mentioned before either. So, But in terms of what's happening in the Pacific Northwest per se, you know, there's a lot of great soil out there and a lot of great micronutrients in the soil that add to what the hops are and what we expect of hops in terms of what's used on the mass scale in craft brewing, where in the East Coast, it, those same you know strains and those same varieties are showing, showing different characters because the terroir is completely different as it would the same with wine grapes. Yeah, huh, that's interesting. So I'll ask the stupid question, what does that word mean? Um, like when when the 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 the, 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 the flavor or the soil that a grape is in um sort of imparts flavor um into the final crop and then you can taste those notes in wine or you know and with beer from the hops yeah so we'll, we'll take cascade which is the quintessential american hop if you will um in the pacific northwest you know if we know sierra nevada pale ale that is cascade as a just a perfect showing of it where out here cascade gets a little bit more grassy a little bit more melony a little bit more floral than that would be okay yeah i, I guess i that's two things i learned now potatoes <laughs> and uh, hop varieties can taste different depending on where they're grown absolutely yeah and we are we're trying to do some work with some stuff uh in terms of trying to recreate uh on some very small scale 
you know, similar soil characteristics as there would be out there. Obviously, the climate itself we can't af affect in any way, but hopefully we can bring a little bit more different character to hops through some micronutrients and stuff like that. That uh, So is that spent. changing the pH of the soil that Too. affects it, or is it just any number of... It's, I don't know much about agriculture. It, it's I, I've learned as I went on this one. I am not a <laughs> farmer by trade, but um, to my understanding, it's more of uh, you, you want your pH to be pretty stable. You want your nitrogen levels to be pretty stable. Um, what defines things a little farther would be micronutrients like boron and stuff like that. So you mentioned collaborations. Mm -hmm. and you, uh, Manor Hill seems to be doing a lot of that lately, and not just with breweries, but also with um, distributors or even retail establishments mm -hmm. like downtown crown seems to be a big place that you guys have a relationship with. Is that from your sales days or is it, they've just been a great partner it's from a, the beginning. Yeah, it's a combination of everything. Honestly, we're looking for partners who are like mindsets with us and whether it be another brewery, whether it be a place that sells beer, whether it be a local company, we are all about making sure that we're doing the right partnerships and think people who are on the same mindset as us and the guys at downtown crown are definitely of that mindset. They have a lot of respect for beer and they do a great job in terms of customer service where they're at. And they really focus on, you know, really promoting craft beer in general and promoting Maryland beer. So that's something that's pretty near and dear to us, obviously. Because yeah, Milk Shop, Malt Shop IPA was great. Thank I you. So can you talk a little bit about, like, I've, I read, I've had it and I read a little bit about it, but I'd just like to hear more about how you came up with Malt Shop. Well, so there's quite a few or a decent amount of, we'll say, milkshake IPAs out there, which are pretty much defined um, very loosely as in using a lot of fruit. Uh, lactose, milk sugar, um, sometimes vanilla beans, and a heavy amount of hops. So it's kind of combining all of these things into one different kind of idea and mindset. I think Tired Hands and Omnipol are the first ones that came up to the, came up with this, and it was kind of antagonistic towards the guys at Beer Advocate because Beer Advocate came to Tired Hands and said, all these beers look like milkshakes. And it was basically a, <laughs> we'll show you a milkshake. <laughs> and uh, they made a single IPA and double IPA versions, and they were taken to very well. Um, Omnipolo, he'd made his on his own as well. Um, and Tired Hands has done a lot of them since. And other companies have jumped on it too. And I always thought it was a really unique concept. And I, uh, any of the ones I had had never really touched me in a way that I really wanted that beer to hit. So we kind of, literally over a year, the first one I, I made on a pilot scale was awesome for about two ounces. And then it just went over the top and I could not drink any more of it. And everyone thought the same thing. The first sip they had was, wow. And then after that, it's like, ooh. <laughs> so it, it, it bounced around in my head for well over a year um, until one day it was just like, okay, it all makes sense. Let's do this. <laughs> and, and is the idea with those that they're an easier drink than traditional IPAs? Or I'm not an IPA girl, so I'd be curious <laughs> to try. I don't know if it's necessarily an easier drink. It's just such a fun, unique style, and it's a really cool concept. Um you are lacking the bitterness. You are getting that fruit and sweet balance in there as well. Um, but you are still looking for a, a balancing substantial bitterness underneath. To, you know, it has to come through because of all that fruit, because of the vanilla, because of the lactose. You need something in there to balance it out. So there's still going to be that bitter level underneath, but it's maybe not quite as harsh or overpowering as some IPAs. Sure, sure. I wonder if that's something that's contributed to the popularity of that trend is that it's a beer that, is unique in almost every sense it it looks completely different oh, yeah it, it smells different than your average ipa and then like the taste is 
completely different. Absolutely. Than- Ours looked kind of like Tropicana. Yeah. It really did. <laughs> um, it was a unique take, and it was, you know, kind of an assault on, on some people because of the fact, you know, um, it's like drinking Crystal Pepsi. Yeah, you, you, you have one idea of what it's going to taste like in your head, and then it just this doesn't completely work. mess with you. Um, but yeah, a lot of people are against the the you know so you, you eat with your eyes, and it's the same thing. Some people say that with beer in terms of filtration. Um, when we came out, we had kegs sent back because our beer was hazy, and now there's plenty of people who say our beer isn't hazy enough. So it's <laughs> been pretty interesting to see um, in in a short time. You know what what the beer drinking community has accepted and what's kind of spreading out farther to those who aren't so craft centric. Well, it's, we've gone from uh, the alchemist stamping uh, drink from the can to hide what it looks like to yeah. people telling you to make your beer hazier. Yeah. Yeah. It's been, it's been a crazy thing for me to see and like literally from the production side sitting back and I mean, tired hands, those guys are one of my biggest influences, and they still are today. They make some fantastic beer, unique beer, um, they never seem to run out of creativity with what they do. So it's always been a great influence to me. And those guys were the first ones, you know, you know, even before the alchemist for me, really, uh, where I said, wow, this is what beer can be. And, uh, those were, that was a huge influence on me. And now you obviously must be a hophead. Oh yeah. There's like the, when I went there, when I went to Manor Hill for the first time, it was, I, I, I am too. So it was like, I was in heaven. It was just <laughs> Some something IPA, something something IPA, oh. something something IPA. It's even worse today if you go. I I may have to go this weekend then. <laughs> I think I uh, I think out of the fourteen taps I have right there, I think probably nine or ten of them are hop forward beers right now. That sounds like per- a perfect <laughs> uh, trip to a brewery then. Yeah, we have the craft brewers conference coming up, and we're part of the a commemorative beer, if you will, for this year's conference. Um, luckily to be in, included in some guys who used to work at Flying Dog. Flying Dog put a concept together called Family Tree. Uh, we were included in that, so there was a little bit of uh, kind of a little bit more presence um, that we're looking to have down there because of that. So we put out some beers just for this that were, you know, it, we were able to showcase a little more of who we are to the craft beer community. That was an amazing segue because that was the next <laughs> thing I wanted to talk about. Um, so let's let's discuss Family Tree a little bit mm-hmm. more. So it's you. Uh, so it was Manor Hill, Waradeka, and mm-hmm. I'm, I feel horrible. I can't remember his name. Keith. Uh, Keith. Mm-hmm. Uh, Flying Dog as the I guess the roots, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. then DC Brow, right? And then Vanish as well. Uh, yeah, Virginia. Uh, uh, with Larry. Yep. So well, um, what kind of beer is it? So it's technically a Belgian pale ale. Um, it kind of crosses lines a little bit in terms of what it really is. Uh, it's about a 6% Belgian pale ale. Uh, part of the mash was acidified, so slightly tart. Um, we use a lot of the grain and grist that uh, Saison would have in terms of field grains, uh, wheat and rye, oats, etc. Uh, we use a really traditional Belgian yeast strain in there. And then we use, uh, I think, exclusively Hallertau Blanc hops, which are a newer German variety that we use quite a bit of. And uh, the other guys have had some good use with it, too, and some really good showings. And it's... Uh, you know, got that great fruity nose out of Hallertau Blanc with a little bit of noble heritage. And uh, that little bit of tartness is fantastic. The Belgian yeast really comes through. It's a beautiful beer, actually. Um, so I'd, I'd seen just recently an article about it being chosen as the the Craft Beer Conference mm-hmm. official beer. Did you know when you were, like, yeah. that it was going to be beforehand? Or what was it chosen after you created it? No, we, we knew. So okay. Flying Dog was tabbed with creating it. And uh, they're the ones who came up with the concept of look at how far one bigger brewery can spread its roots into the local movement. And, uh, 
you know, I was the other three guys, they all brewed there. I was the one kind of outcast who just sold beer <laughs> there. But I was involved with a lot of the meetings in terms of the production side of things. So I wasn't just straight feet on the street there. So I was able to uh, be involved and learn what the, the production side looks like from back of house a lot of times. Um, so that was really interesting and a unique perspective for me. And I was real, I, I couldn't have been more honored when they reached out to me and asked. So it was, it was fantastic for me to kind of loop back around. And you know, a lot of people in that building are still some of my best friends. So. Awesome. So what did you guys just all get together and you decided what you were going to make or did flying dog kind of steer that and then bring you guys on board? Oh no, it started from ground up. Um, we all met for the first time and then we all kind of just talked, hung out for a while and it's like, Oh, well let's get to this recipe formulation. You know, when you have five <laughs> people in a room and bring five uniquely distinct styles for the most part, um, we thought it'd be pretty difficult, but it was the opposite. Um, we were all a little quiet in the beginning, but you know, once the conversation started, the recipe was probably done in 20 minutes. <laughs> so was it brewed only at Flying Dog or did you all get brew some of it? It was brewed at Flying Dog for now, so far. Um, we're talking about, you know, potentially spreading this concept out and brewing it in each brewery's unique style on their system at some point down the road. So kind of an ongoing, uh, you know, cool. story. Uh, but each of you put your own, like the children left the nest. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you put your own little spin on the. Absolutely. So we're looking at that. There's no concrete plans, but uh, it's something I know I would like to do. Um, I think we're doing some unique stuff on the farm right now um, in different kind of segments, even than people are used to. So I think it could showcase that well down the down the road. And I'm guessing you'll just hop the hell out of it. <laughs> we have some fun stuff going on um, also with uh, wild and spontaneous fermentation, um, some actual, you know, wood fermentation and uh, different souring bacteria and microbes and all that kind of good fun stuff too so maybe even down that road a little uh, bit so do you have a completely separate area you're doing that in because that's hear that a lot like some places are very oh yes scared to get into that because they don't want the rest of their brew house to become infected i have a second barn for that okay <laughs> so you do, not even in the same building no not even close <laughs> That's cool. Um, so have you had had many beers you've released or are you still purely in experimentals? Well, that that's a pretty extensive project. Um, we have about 90 barrels of beer in that barn right now, uh, all entered uh, right around November um, for the most part, give or take. A few that were in a little earlier, a few that were in a little later, but we'll say November. And that's usually at least a year out. Okay. Um, in terms of like there's some incre only Brett fermented beers. There's some that include lactobacillus and pediococcus and some that include, you know, spontaneous, which could be 18, 24, 36 months in that wood before it actually leaves. And are you aiming for any particular styles or just seeing where it ends up? Kind of seeing where it ends up. We have two base beers in there right now. Um, both field grain driven kind of stuff, both farm driven kind of stuff. So um, I what happens in each one of those individual barrels will tell us what the beer wants to be i have a lot of local fruit that i buy and i freeze so mm -hmm. over time it's kind of same thing we can either do each specific one as an individual style blend some together we have a variety of options in terms but i it's more whatever beer exists in each specific barrel is going to be what it tells us what it wants to do that's yeah. something i've always wondered is it a huge gamble when you're doing that or can you are there a lot of things you can do to save what those beers if they go off track to you put the beer or you put the yeast you put the microbes you put everything in the best environment to do its job and then you kind of hope for the best in some ways I'm, you know some of that beer won't make it um we know that 
that's uh, part of you know the risk we take going into this. Uh, we, like I said, we do everything we can to make sure it's got its best environment to operate, but it's going to kind of, some of those things are going to be a lot more predictable and some are just not. So uh, we, for the most part, you know, you, you, everything that I've tasted so far, I've got no off flavors. So I'm very, very hopeful that I've created a really good environment for everything to do its job. And do you think being a farm brewery makes you more able to do that type of experimentation or does it sort of limit you a little bit? I think actually because we have, you know, we're not just one industrial park. Um, we have multiple outposts in the same ground and we have a lot of different things going on on the farm. We're able to do some, have a little bit more levity in what we do on that side of things. Um, but it's just about controlling it all, you know, making sure that you're not contaminating because that's the biggest thing. Because once it's in, it's in. It's not going anywhere. <laughs> um, I I want to talk about Red Juice IPA a little mm-hmm. bit because I I I've only, I only knew about it purely from seeing pictures of the label and the can, which made me want to have it instantly. <laughs> but I I don't know any details about what it is. So Dave from Downtown Crown, you know, came to me with the idea of doing a collab, and well, what do you want to do? And he said. I want to do like a New England style red IPA. And I said, no, (laughs) not happening. Bad day. And he's like, all right. And I sent him a text a few hours later. I'm like, well, let me think about it. (laughs) And then it kind of mulled over in my head for a little while. And I'm like, I think I can make sense of this. I think I can actually, you know, because it just didn't make sense to me at first. There wasn't anything that kind of worked together and hop combinations and, you know, that strong malt comp, you know, bill that's in there. There wasn't anything that made sense. But after mulling it over for a little while, I kind of came up with a combination of everything that I wanted to do. And I kind of approached him with it. And I said, well, this is what I'm thinking. How does this sound? And he's like, yeah, that's exactly what I want. Okay, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's it's uh, 6.5% red IPA. Uh, a little less malt character than you'd expect out of a red IPA. Um, being that we're using the typical yeast that would be used in, a, we'll say, Northeast slash New England style. I didn't want those two things to combat each other too much. Um and using some unique hops in there, um, Idaho 7, which is a wild-derived hop um, that can be pretty strong and pretty pungent. But if used properly, um, it really can bring out some really, really cool aspects. Um, we use some topaz from Australia, which is of a similar kind of ilk, but has a little bit less tropical component to it. And Azaka, which is a very tropical, um, just a very generic tropical, but easy hop that really kind of tied everything together. So uh, do you have any other collaborations or super interesting beers you <laughs> want to talk about that'll be coming out soon? So I, we, we've got a lot of, um, for CBC, we did uh, pale ale, 4.6% pale ale that was uh, all lupulin powder, which is a brand new kind of technology available that uh, one of our providers is using. And it sounds very gimmicky, but what it is, is it takes away a lot of the vegetative matter, gives a lot of consistency, gives less tank time, gives more yield, cut shipping literally in half because I'm using half the amount. So it's got a far-ranging effect potentially, and this was our first foray into using entirely powder in a beer. We've, we've substituted some things in for just trying it out, testing it out, seeing what levels to use it as, um, but we're real happy with that one. And that beer is a 4.6% beer with all of the goodness and what you'd expect out of an 8% IPA in this little guy. So, so that seems to taking extract even... Uh hop extract an even step further yeah i think you there's some things you lose in extract you can't use extract very well late in the kettle where you will save on a lot of other things by using it late in the, or early in the kettle 
in terms of yield and in terms of consistency, et cetera. But you do lose some of the uh, volatile side of hops um, where lupulin powder is the opposite. You can only use it late in the kettle and dry hop. Um, so if you're gaining your bitterness out of it, you have to use copious amounts. Okay. Is that a, a new processing technology or has it been around and it's just now catching? Well, it was around from, we'll say, a hop hash standpoint for a while, which was literally when hops got pelletized, the powder that was left over, they scraped off the sides and that existed for a while. This has taken that concept and cryogenically freezing the hops and pulverizing them. So you're using a lot less of the vegetative side of it and you're, you're really concentrating the oils and such. Oh, I hadn't heard of that yet. That's pretty cool. The yeah. third thing I've learned today. <laughs> it, it's kind of a new thing, and some guys are using it right now, um, just testing it out, but testing it out, and it sounds really, really cool um, from a gimmicky kind of marketing perspective, but I think from a long-ranging perspective, there's a lot of goodness that can come of this. And now it's getting to be spring and summer. Are there any um, like fruits or any other crops that you're trying to incorporate into newer beers? We, we're brewing one beer right now that's uh, we're brewing essentially just for a Manor Hill Tavern. That is, uh, I'm just getting today my first shipment of um, two-row grown exclusively in Maryland. So we're going to use this in a, a farm-based kind of farmhouse wit that we've been doing for a little while. We're just changing everything over to local as possible. Um, we're already I've already got literally thousands of pounds of peaches frozen from Maryland um, that we use in this beer. So we're trying to go towards that and stuff like that. We um, There's just not a whole lot being grown in Maryland right now from the fruit perspective. We're getting what we can, but the berry side of things, we're doing that when it's seasonal in terms of strawberries, blueberries, blackberries, um, even elderberries. So huh. we're, yellow peaches are actually awesome from, or yellow plums, excuse me, are awesome from here too. So we've got those. So we're trying to do it as much as we can, but just the level that we need it on. So I just ordered, we're doing a, a collaboration beer for, I think it's awesome con in DC. Um, I'm not sure exactly what that looks like yet, but I had to order 500, 600 pounds of pink guava for it. So finding huh. that <laughs> kind of stuff and, and also the processing factor, you know, finding a place that can, make you know a septic kind of uh anti microbe if you will fruit is real tough to do i don't have the ability to do that much so finding that's tough too okay so there was another nice segue because i wanted to talk about the tavern a little mm-hmm. bit because th- that was recently opened mm-hmm. um what was the idea behind it just to have a they just wanted to expand their business or is you just want a place where you can showcase your beers i or? think there was a lot of things that made sense in that one. Um, number one, our tap room. Uh, you've seen our tap room. It's it's a decent size. Well, attached to our license is a 50-person limit. Mm. So we have to have reservations to keep people at that 50-person limit to show the powers that be that we are holding to this 50-person limit. Um, so we couldn't always give the experience to everyone that we wanted to. So And we're only open Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So we wanted to make sure that we could provide the Manor Hill, if you will, experience elsewhere. Um, Ellicott City, again, we are an Ellicott City address, but people associate Ellicott City with Old Town Ellicott City. So we wanted to have a better connection with the town, too, and give you know a, a unique perspective to them in terms of we are Ellicott City. So we want people to know that we're, we're down there and we're ingrained as well. So that was another side of things. Well, it, <clears throat> Are you serving only Manor Hill beers, or it, do you have guest beers also? 
We, we, right now we have, uh, our friends at Oliver's, we don't do nitro. So, uh, they're providing us with a nitro line there. Um, we have a couple of beers, uh, meads, et cetera, on, in cans and bottles as well. But in terms of the 10 taps, nine of the taps are all Manor Hill. So one last thing I wanted to talk about is I figured yeah, tomorrow is D-Day. <laughs> as uh, Now, HB 1283, that, that really wouldn't affect Manor Hill at all, right? But I'm... It, it doesn't, but, you know, the as, as Ben said, as yeah, Savage it, said, it, the rising tide raises all ships. Yeah, so you're, you're, as a part of the community, I'm sure you still are concerned about it. Absolutely. And, and at the end of the day, you know, I got into this industry to, in my dreams, open my own brewery one day. Um, and if that were to happen, this is something that would incredibly negatively impact my ability. I'm born and raised in Maryland. I'd love to keep my business here. Um, but that would negatively impact my ability to do so. Um, and a lot of people, you know, I think there's 60 licensed breweries in Maryland right now with another 20 plus on the books. And these guys, you know, might never see the light of day because of this. And, uh, that's keeping all of Maryland in Maryland. These guys, these are little guys too. These guys are the ones who would only be able to sell their own beer. And, uh, if these restrictions are placed on them, they might not be able to do that. Well, the, the thing I keep hearing from like attaboy is like, we moved across the country to open in Maryland and you like, we haven't even been open a year and you're changing the laws that are going to make it very hard to do business. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, um, I, I don't want to jinx things, but it sounds like there's some positivity coming out of, uh, you know, the government at this point, we'll say. So um, is that, have you been get, have you guys been getting feedback from BAM with how things are going, talking to the senators yes. to get an idea of how like, how it's their where their mindset is right now absolutely bam's kept us in the loop on everything um making sure that we're all updated along the way if there's anything to pass along they pass it along if they have any sort of uh if there's something that obviously we don't understand this side of things and that's why we have bam yeah so if there's things that they have pointers on in terms of how to speak better towards this to our local legislators or help people speak towards it they've been absolutely helping us with that so is there the sense that the Senate's not going to deliver the same surprise that the House did tomorrow? We, we hope so. I think um, we're doing the work to uh, work with all sides um, and make sure that everyone's well informed of what this looks like from every level. And I think that people are seeing that. But, you know, I don't I can't speak for everyone, obviously. Yeah. So and we're, we're hoping we're feeling good, but we'll see what happens. Well, uh, thanks so much for coming out, Ben. It was great talking to you. I love what Manor Hill's doing. and Thank you. I, I think I might have to come out uh, this weekend to have a flight of hop goodness. Please do. <laughs> Please do. And, uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. The Uncapped Podcast is produced by Graham Cullen and me, Chris Sands. Be sure to like us on Facebook. And if you've enjoyed these podcasts, please leave us a review on Google Play or the iTunes Store. A special thanks to Double Motorcycle for providing our theme music. Thanks for listening.